What does it take to make workshops work? And how can we facilitate collaboration that sticks and leads to results? My name is Miriam Hapness, and with the Workshops Work podcast, I'm on the mission to find the magic ingredients that make workshops work. Today with me on the show is Tom Goldhand, a dancer and dance teacher. And we speak about facilitating dance classes and what we can learn from dancing about communication and leadership. So stay tuned. And by the way, if you don't have pen and paper at hand to take your own notes, scroll down to the show notes to download my free one-page summary. And now, lean back to be inspired. Tom, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Miriam. I am so excited to have you here because I was in one of your workshops and to give the audience a little bit of context, it wasn't a business verbal workshop. It was a dance improvisation workshop. Mm -hmm. And the moment you stepped in and set the space, I knew two things. One was I want to learn dancing from you. And second was I want to learn more about how you facilitate. Thank you. Yeah, that's very, uh, it's very, very nice to hear from both sides. I really like what I do. I like to share dance, dance and movement, basically movement with awareness. That's my definition for dance. And uh, facilitation is something that I've, I think, acquired the skills in the last roughly 10 years. Mm. So it's nice to hear that uh, it's really coming from you. Yeah. Unfortunately, the dance, uh, the audience has to find out for themselves, but for the facilitation, we can learn together. When did you start calling yourself a facilitator? It's funny because I don't use that word so often. I use it mostly as a teacher. I'm a teacher of dance and the facilitation is in the background. So people who are facilitators who are more into that, they will recognize it. And people who are, call themselves mostly teachers will recognize the other aspects. And facilitation for me is basically the, the way that you're holding space and allowing knowledge to be shared and to be passed through you and between the people. So I just consider that holding space for teaching, for sharing mm. knowledge. If you do it correctly, or if you do it very well, and they don't see it. So I think a lot of my, uh, let's say, clients, students, people who come to me, they will not see that as, uh, as, facil as a facilitator in my classes or workshops, but they will see that they, they came for a very nice dance or movement workshops and it worked. Mm. And they come out of it with a very different feeling. And I think that's also why people come or stay, because it's not only about the material. Sometimes call um, a good teacher, and we can change that word for facilitator here, that they need to have um, three realms to, let's say, semi-master. And that's the physical, I call it the physical, psychological, and for lack of a better word, spiritual or being or awareness. The first part is the physical, so you need to know your material. You need to have a certain degree of, let's say, acquaintance or mastery of what you want to give. The psychology is the ability to hold space for the people to be able to get it. So um, to notice the psychological aspect of where they are, especially in movement, because it's all visible in the body. Frustration, mm -hmm. enjoyment, tiredness. And uh, again, spiritual awareness, you need to have a wish for them to be as good or better than you. Mm. And you said that, and, and that's your intention, and that's the qualities that you bring, then it's a good workshop. And then the material can pass very easily. Beautiful. 
Thank you for putting this um, into context. And I'm just amazed by how much this applies to any workshop facilitation, independent whether it's dance or more the intellectual, then it's not the physical, but maybe the intellectual mm -hmm. content that you try to yeah. pass on. And I'm curious, I would like to dig deeper into what you said about the psychological. So everyone comes to your workshop with their own baggage. Yeah, hopes and fears. Yes. And how do you sense that? And how do you integrate or how do you adjust your material and the structure of what you do, depending on what the space offers you? Yeah. So first of all, you need to see where they are in their bodies physically, what their um, comfort in the, in the movement material that we do. That's very visible for me, the way they enter the room. So sometimes postures, their face, the way that they greet you, the way that you greet them and how they respond. So all of these non-verbal cues are much more important than the verbal cues. Where they sit in space, how they sit in space, if they're interacting with others, if they're lying down, if they're against the, the wall, if they're close to me or further away. All of these, it's like we are a, a group of community of, let's say, animals, because it's an animalistic language or body language. And once you recognize that, you really know where people are. So this is like the first year, and, and I'm not sure about this. This is a hype. Every time I do this, is what I'm thinking. In the beginning, it is, of course, with projection and all of that stuff. So then after that, I'm bringing everybody together. Let's do a check-in. Again, you ask people to come in. You see who come in running and who is lagging behind and who is all of this very small queue. Saying their names, yeah, you know, you've been there, so you know that I ask everybody to say their name for two reasons. Uh, one is actually for more than two reasons, but one is to actually uh, say your name to the space. So the space gets to know you, you get to know them, and to see how you communicate that to others. If you approach it to me or to the group. The second thing is like, how fast is it? So this is the big, big body. So if everybody's going very, very, very fast with the names, there's high tension level in the group. If everybody's relaxed, they take a breath after every name. Then it's still just the way that they say it. And then I ask for a small energy level. You also notice that probably in my workshop. If you're tired, you place in that. If you're um, ready to play, you place it in the middle. And if you're hyper, you place your hand very high. So then I check if I'm right. So, okay. And people see each other again. So all of these things are small cues that I tap into and they tap into unconsciously. So they see who's hyper and if they're hyper, they will meet. They will want to meet. If two people are very tired, they might meet or want to meet as well. And energies kind of sometimes either tend to consciously meet each other at the same level or unconsciously same level or opposite. Mm. Yeah. So this is like how I see it in the beginning and then what you try to do is you try to equalize it as a group so the people who are, who are really tired you need to bring them into some kind of level of awareness which is a little bit more up and the people that are hyper you try to ground them a little bit more and slow them a little down to create what i call a cohesive uh, space if the space is very very bubbly call it it's kind of tough to bring material in Because the everybody, personal attention? 
it's not that no attention, it's the attention is scattered and the energy level of the attention is very, very in different directions, which means the hyper people, for example, will be much more social and engaging fast. And the people who have less energy or much more inward, they will have a hard time hearing what I'm saying or engaging with it. So you need to bring the people who are much more uh, in Dutch, say, being in the token or inward, uh, going inward, a little bit more up. Out, sorry. And the people who are completely out there and running, jumping, bringing lots of, say, fireworks into the studio, just a little bit calm down. This will change, but you need that for the beginning. So, the beginning, you create a cohesive, semi cohesive group. And then, when people are meeting each other later on, you can again divide or, or go into your own energy later. And again, I find this um, fascinating because I think this is very often a step that we tend to forget when we're in the verbal space yeah. because we're working with the similar energies. Some are very excited and have lots of energy and want to get to work and others are drained because we yeah. don't know what has happened to them before. And to be aware of that and to create this cohesiveness and to prepare the group so that they can then work together from a similar stage i think is very important so how yeah. do you do that well, what you just said about that that's really really important because if not it creates conflicts it creates misunderstanding in the group and it creates a lack of will to work together once you have that set people will bring their gift so i need every group needs the fireworks every group needs the contemplative person every group needs that But when they can reach and hear each other, then they can bring their gift in a very different way. The way that I do that is usually in walking. There's a few ways. My classical way of doing that is walking because I really see a lot of what's going on in the, in the space. You see who bumps into who. You see how they walk. You see if it's lethargic weight, which means they're tired, or if they're not grounded and they're walking on the uh, forefront of their feet. There's a lot of things that really can happen. And then as you add a little bit more information, usually I ask them to go either faster or to add more body parts. You see also how much information they can process. Mm. The eyes and, and, and the way that they breathe is the biggest indication. And you will hear me in class constantly saying, eyes are up, not to the floor. Notice in your breath, relax your jaw. These are my little... Uh, And key phrases that everybody knows in my classes. And they give it sometimes back to me. Because with that, you can open. You can really, really open. And it balances the entire group. Now, of course, the group knows how to do that because they come quite a long time with me. So newbies is really interesting to see because it can bring the sympathetic, the fight or flight, the attention and fight or flight system a little bit more up. If you're walking in a group and you're almost going, bumping or going fast, and then you really see how they can handle it. So I always say, this is your first time, go in the periphery, breathe there, and once in a while, go into the washing machine inside where there's a lot of people. And that's how I feel new people. And then from that, we slow down and we start to meet each other. Usually what happens when you're going into a little bit more of an arousal state physically, not sexual, but arousal of energy, Like much more uh, heartbeat, a little bit higher than 70 or 80. And slowing down, sensitivity kicks in. Sensitivity in the way that you can process information from your senses in a better way. 
So you brought more information by moving, 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 slow down, then tack, 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 tack. It's like small body scan as you move. And then they become more sensitive to the body, to themselves and to others. And the way that they play in space, not necessarily in contact, because you came to a physical contact dance way, but I do that in all of my workshops. This applies, and after that, it, it goes to uh, dance and exercises and the material that I want to bring. This applies in most of the case, that's how I start, unless you sense that more than 50% of the group is very tired. 50% of the group is very tired. Then you need to go with the group, which means you will start on the floor, or you will start with breathing, or you will start with meditation. If you will try to push more than 30, 40, and definitely more than 50% of the energy of the group, in your way rather than their way, you will suffer, the group will not go with you, and you are basically missing the point. And that's very, very insightful. And just for me to understand, so if the group is low in energy, you would basically meet them where they are, so with slower meditation and then slightly build the energy up together? Yeah. And then with a group that is 50% high in energy, would you then do the opposite, that you go into high-intensive no, movement? Actually, in the uh, actually, it's not the, the both edges, like completely lethargic, tired from the day, you will go into the floor, you will go from there. And the people who are, if the entire group is after two cups of coffee and very, very hyper, you will do the same. Mm. You will stand and you will meditate. You want to bring everybody to a cohesive, roughly bell-shaped, Curve, you want to be in the middle. Usually, when a group comes, there are a few people who are hyper, a few people who are very tired, or have an emotional process, and the majority is in the middle. So they join the majority, or they sit, which is fine, sit outside. When the entire group, or the majority, or above 50, is on each of these sides, you need to, to address it in a different way. You need to really bring them to a more sympathetic, not lethargic, but sorry, parasympathetic, like relaxing place, and from there starting. Mm. And usually after that, there will come either some exercises or back to an engagement with walking, but you start differently. Uh, I have to say that if I remember correctly, in my group for the last two years, let's say, it doesn't happen a lot, but it does happen. Uh, I have my sticks and my own patterns already that I know it's works and I know how to do it. They are also very aware of that. So they know that, okay, we walk, here we go. And sometimes I need to surprise also myself and we do different. We do it in a different way to reach the same goal, but in a different way. Interesting. Before I um, go into a different direction, I remember you saying that you did workshops online during the yep. lockdown. How did you replicate such a, an exercise online? You don't. You don't. So the online is uh, challenging in a way, in many ways, especially for dance classes. Contact is not possible to do online, or some people have done it. I tried it once in the class where I went, and I felt very, very, let's say, not happy with the result. So I said, I'm not going to do that. But dancing and movement, a way of communicating and connection can be done. The walking in between doesn't work, of course, mm-hmm. yeah, because you don't have any interaction. But you do the same process, like saying the names or seeing each other, mentioning on the screen where is your energy level. Mm-hmm. Because it's not only for other people to see that, it's for you to recognize. You're okay. contemplating where I am now. 
And you need to know it in order to show it. Sometimes people will take some time and like, okay, where am I? And then the warm-up is individual. So I need to show, which usually I don't show a lot. Everybody takes some, uh, some few steps away from the screen. A few steps away from the screen, and we start to open in a body scan and movement the rest of the body. And then you play in your kitchen, living room, or, or your own room with space. And this is the warm up. It's much harder to engage, but if you have people who come for a class, they want to mm. differently. Yeah. And then the intercommunication between people comes after in a way that uh, you do it in either a breakout room or you put one person or your partner uh, on the big screen and you dance and communicate via visual yeah. sense. I love to do that in uh, in workshops for nonverbal communication, just mirroring each other. It's magic. True. Yeah. And the fact that trust. you create connection while you know that the other person is very far away from you gives a very different sensation. Yeah. Which makes me now curious about... Um, The contact versus no contact improv. <laughs> as you, as you mentioned, I was in your class where contact, well, maybe I let you explain the difference yeah. between contact improv and. Yeah. So contact improvisation is a dance form, modern dance form that was created 50 years ago, which is, has a very big philosophy behind it, which we probably will not go here now. But the form basically requires two bodies, let's call it like that, two dancers, and they share in physical connection, information about their weight, how they lean into each other, how they move, and physicality, which means momentum or gravity. It sounds very weird when I describe it like this, but it basically means two people dancing in physical contact with different parts of their body, on the floor, up, down, can carry each other, can lift each other, and it can be very, very acrobatic, or very slow and uh, intensive and attentive. The difference between this and dance improvisation is that dance improvisation is a bigger world that includes in contact, and it doesn't have to be constantly in physical contact. And the emphasis there is much more of awareness to, let's say, four things. Your own body, the intercommunication and playful with one partner, space, where do you put yourself in composition, the big group, which means if it's more than just one partner, how the a group of six, seven, eight people improvise and move together to create a dance piece that sometimes feels not improvised and looks better than choreography. These are rare moments, but those are the moments where it's like everybody feels that they're in the flow, on the zone, and something came from above. And the last thing is uh, mostly for professional dancer is the performative aspect of the form which is basically to actually put on a show, a dance show, where almost everything is improvised. And sometimes there are some fixed anchors or uh, predetermined decisions. So contact was invented from improvisation because nothing is fixed there. But the premises of it is physics. Simply mm. two bodies dancing together with physical contact. Thank you for that. <laughs> a little bit of context. Yes. And what I find fascinating or what I'm very curious about is how does communication work differently in both forms? Because in the, as you say, in the contact improv, it's physics. So I can 
feel the resistance and there's always, we don't need words because we feel where it's going. Mm -hmm. If there's no touch point, how do dancers then communicate and how do you facilitate that? Well, first of all, all of the communication uh, travels through many different mediums. So, of course, if there is touch, what you refer to the communication is usually the physical communication, mm -hmm. the weight. Uh, sometimes you can also sense intention with, with touch or the place where the person is regarding to that medium. But all, a lot of communication is conveyed also in, in normal, let's say, uh, meetings. And most of it is not verbally. So some people say like it is 70%, 80%, doesn't matter. But the majority of the communication that happens between people is non-verbally. And your body resonates it unconsciously, which means if a person is very tense, their, their breath is high, their gaze is down, and you meet them and they talk to you, even if they would say, well, I'm very, very happy, your body doesn't believe it. And unconsciously, you pick that energy. It's called physical resonance or kinesthetic empathy. So when you're dancing and somebody will come very, very fast, your unconscious conditioning is to attach that level of energy and to move similarly. The best example in the business world is when you're given a handshake, you will match the strength roughly in the way that your, your partner is giving you a handshake. So if you will feel somebody who's really has a firm handshake or a strong one, you will immediately engage more to balance it. And if you have a dead hand person, it's like, okay, it feels weird. What we usually do if we don't have like a very strict form of giving a handshake, if we are adaptable or playing in what we're listening, we will adjust the way that we are handling this meeting. So yeah, a lot of the communication happens through space, through vision, peripheral vision, And for stuff that you don't even see, but you feel. And the then, space that, yeah. Yeah, so mm -hmm. the, yep, space that you, the space that you take, the space, if people take much more space, you will see people take going out of the space. You will see the conditioning about uh, introvert, extrovert, the use of space, the use of level of different body parts and different heights. If somebody wants to take to go first, they will usually enter the scene. And there's always the people who jump second. And there's always the one that will wait quite a long and only if it's needed will intervene or go into the space to add something. And there's always the one that will add anyway, no matter what. If there's a lot of stuff in the scene, they will jump in as well. And again, I can see the, the equivalent of that in a verbal workshop, <laughs> no better words. And especially as a teacher, you want the shy ones also to, to join and to contribute more. So the shy voices or the shy bodies, and maybe you want the more dominant ones to leave more space and to calm down. What are the tricks that you are using? Because I think asking someone to dance in the group as one of the first when they're actually shy is even more intimidating when it comes to dancing, which is something very personal and vulnerable than to speaking. Yeah. True. What are your tricks? First of all, they need to recognize that in themselves and they want to give themselves permission to do that. So if that comes from me, that will come as not only a challenge, but also a demand. And that can bring more walls. 
So uh, there's a few things. For example, you know, we do this, everybody's sitting and everybody bringing some stuff to the fire, or I ask people to bring stuff into the fire, if they can recognize stuff from their body. And there will always be the person that comes first or shares something first. And if that is a pattern, I can use that very easily to say, we are in a dance improvisation class. Our aim for the class is to expand your pattern, which means notice them and expand them. So if you're the person who's always jumping first, take 10 seconds of breath and make sure that you're not the one who goes first. And if you've never jumped into the bringing stuff into the fire and you notice that, this is your opportunity. Mostly I will not pressure people to do that. And sometimes, very rarely, I will ask, like, what's your opinion? Or did you have something like addressing it with names? Mm. That. On the dance floor, I'm a little bit more tough, let's say. So if somebody keeps on coming in for the first time or takes a lot of space, I will first say, look at what you're doing. And if it keeps on coming, it's like, no, come back, wait. Very strict, like, feel it. And they don't like me at that point, which is fine. This is the place where facilitator changing to teacher. <laughs> and if they need that and it works, I'll come back to facilitator, do what you want. It's about recognizing your pattern and then choosing. If you don't recognize your patterns, then you're doing it unconsciously. And that's not the aim of the class or we don't grow from it. And with people who don't want to come in, those are the shy bodies, let's call it like that, shy people. I will invite them to do that. You go first. Jump into the water. And they will feel that it's an invitation, not a demand. So they always have a possibility to say no. Mm. Because, yeah, I usually say that in the class, there's a few teachers. There's me as a facilitator that leads the entire big body. There's your partners that help you see what you cannot see. And there's your body. And when me and your body are fighting over something, when we are in Dutch, botsin, I like that word. When we are fighting about something, I say, let's do that. And your body says, no, your body always wins. The ability to heal the body and actually acknowledge it and say no is great. And if they say no to me, I'm even happier. Because that means that's a safer space or a safe enough space for them to say no to the power authority in the room. So they can take care of themselves even from the biggest power in the room, which is the teacher or the facilitator. Beautiful. Yeah. And to, to give permission, basically, to set boundaries and to listen to your own mm-hmm. needs. That's very helpful. And I would like to come back to the fire mm-hmm. <laughs> because the audience might uh, miss a piece of information. Yeah. And it was actually, this was the moment where I saw your facilitation skills when you did that and maybe you want to share your signature exercise if i may call it like this that's a typical tom right sorry that's a typical tom yes uh, yes i don't i don't think i took it for some from somebody some of the stuff of course i i I take from other teacher facilitators and i try to get credit in that but i don't think i saw that elsewhere and i really liked it so it came from my body and what we do is basically we create a i call it when we create a circle we create a mythical fire in the middle and the fire works in a very nice way we need to keep it alive so from time to time we bring logs of wood from our body into the fire 
And those logs can be either sensation, realization, uh, questions, feelings, everything that is alive in you, you bring to the fire. So there's no negative or positive here. I always say that questions are very, very welcome, and I don't always answer. It's either I don't know the answer and I say so, or the answer comes from my body and it will not help your body. So open questions in my eyes are much, much, much more valuable than closed answers because it keeps the research going. And people really like it. And sometimes they don't understand what's the fire, how does it work, and after a few times you get the hang of it and it keeps on the inquiry, the research, and the class. And I also know how to play more with information. Yeah. And what I like about the analogy, so the fire is kept alive through verbal pieces of wood and everyone contributes. So it's basically, it's a, it's a shared responsibility to keep this fire alive and a fire in a circle sitting around it is like, it keeps the group warm. So it's yep. nurtures the entire group and everyone in the group is part of this process. Mm -hmm. And the fact that nothing is commented mm -hmm. yeah. is a regular check-in for the situation, what needs to be voiced. Sometimes it makes sense, sometimes it doesn't, and it's okay. So I think it it really helps to maintain the safe space that you realize everything I say and sense is okay to share. Mm -hmm. yeah. This comes from facilitation technique or methods, also from therapy. So by creating that safe space that people are witnessing and not responding, people are able to say what they feel and want without no, with knowing that nobody will interrupt them, except me if it goes way beyond the scope of time, or that they will not get a, a reaction about it. And it works also both ways, because sometimes some groups, some people have a tendency of sharing only the good stuff, and I don't want only that. So if an exercise was shit or if you had a bad experience, better put it in. I don't get insulted. I'm With teaching and facilitation, I, I'm already in the place where please bring your bad shit. I don't get insulted. If you had like really bad class, it's fine. And they can also sometimes bring pain. It's like I need to put in the fire my shoulder pain. And then the fire works very different. We all say that if it's a positive thing. We all can take from the fire and we take it into our body. It's a negative thing. The fire works brilliantly. It just burns it up. And then you see lots of people start to put, I have a knee pain, I have a headache. It's fine. <laughs> Burn it up. Nice. And since you talked about bad workshops or bad experiences, what makes a workshop fail in your perspective? Yeah, a workshop will fail. I don't like to use that word, but it is not successful in a sense. If no, no one from the... And people who came, including myself, got something out of it. So in that sense, my bar is very low. <laughs> if somebody learned something, if we, if we could learn something from this, good enough. In, for example, my bar is even lower when we do very strong contact improvisation. I said, nobody died, it's a success. <laughs> nobody injured. Nobody injured, it's a success, exactly. Yeah, so in that sense, I need people to learn. And I need myself as well to have a, a good learning experience. Usually it comes together. I don't remember when there was like a, a failed, let's say, workshop. I do remember workshops where it's, were hard to hold. 
And that's mostly emotional. Mostly emotional. Can you give an example? Yeah, yeah, of course. When people come with different expectations, when people come with some emotional processes that are not yet fully integrated, I mean, we are working with the body, so everything is stored there, and it's very easy to tap or open those through movement, which sometimes doesn't happen in, let's say, verbal uh, facilitation workshops, unless it's therapy workshop, and then it's very much orientated there. Mm -hmm. My workshops is uh, not orientated for therapy, but it's basically sometimes happening behind the scenes very, very clear. I'm very happy that I have training there, so done dance therapy education, so I can notice the changes that happens, and then we are not going there, and and basically uh, skew it a little bit to the right or to the left. And sometimes it's either I miss the cues, Oh, there's what uh, we say, again, I like the word in Dutch, keep. <laughs> like a person who pops for any reason. And of course, it affects the group and you need to know how to handle it. So those are the challenging workshops. They're not a failed one because you really expand the abilities for you to facilitate when you are handling difficult classes or facilitation sessions. Yeah. There are two aspects that I'm very curious about one is how to how to detect it and not to go that route and the other one is how to if it gets emotional if stuff comes up how to close it because both both are situations that i can also refer to sometimes there's conflict coming up or there triggers coming up and then how to yeah how to handle it in a way that is that it's not becoming therapy because most of the audience i think are not therapists and i would still be curious about um, the difference how you would handle it um, in dance therapy and how to yeah. Process, yeah so conflict usually doesn't happen between participants in dance session in movement session they will just go away mm-hmm. and their energy will not meet they will not want to work together when they do, they will find it unpleasant. Usually conflict is uh, with me. Mm-hmm. It's, it's addressed to me. And it's not full-blown conflict, although it can happen. You see it under the under the carpet. They will do stuff that is not helpful not for them, not for the workshop, not for, for the group. Sometimes you use Aikido, I call it, the Aikido mm-hmm. movement. It's like, I see what you're doing. I will go with you. We'll change it a little bit and we'll come back. And sometimes you put them... Uh, you put it on the spot. And then it depends on the person. It depends on your interaction with them. I sometimes call myself a little bit more of it. I'm a soft and a tough teacher or facilitator in that sense. So the, 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 the setting is very clear. And once you say yes to those settings, I have no problem with you going elsewhere, especially if you're doing it for your own research. If you're now not in a place that is beneficial for you, me or the group, if in, if it's one of them, it's fine. But if all three of them are not uh, applicable, then you will get a, I will say something into the space, not address it for them. For example, if I see somebody's grabbing and it's not okay to grab in, in different workshops, I will say, notice that you don't grab. Very mm-hmm. simple. If they don't notice, I will come closer to them and say that. If they don't notice, then this comes. 
Mm. You tap and on the shoulder. Yeah. And this comes because this is, an, uh, when everybody's doing something else, they don't see me addressing that person. So it's only me and him or me and her. If I will tell in the big space, punch, punch, like their name, stop grabbing, then everybody's, all of the attention is on him or her. And then there's like, hmm, I'm, a, I'm a bad, da, 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 da. if I'm saying it in a different way, it's a guideline. Everybody knows it. Also, you open your eyes. There's a lot of time people close their eyes. You just say that again and again. And some people, they, I know that they really like it. So I'm tapping mm-hmm. and I'm coming closer to them. And I'm saying that. So these are the small things that uh, I do with, with participants. When there's a high, I think I don't need like three, max five, high big uh, resistance and conflict between me and him or her, that's a tough one. That's a very, very tough one. I remember one class that person really said that this is not what I came for. Mm. And he has been with me for three years. So he comes every week. He used to come every week. So I know he gets something from the classes. We have hardly, hardly any contact verbally. And he follows every class. He follows every class. And then at one time, he was really annoyed because I was going into more of what I call the Lala Land, which is we're working with movement with intention. And it's very hard to copy intention. Mm-hmm. It's like, I have my new views. And he said, no, this is not what I come from. Ta-ta-ti. I want to dance like this man or this woman. I want to be better at this. I was like, that's great, but that is not your class. Simple. And it continued. And once I realized that we are actually going into a little bit of a fighting mode and the group watches that it needed to be changed yeah so i said okay we're going to close that we're going to walk that was the longest walk i ever done in my class literally the longest walk. the class after that went great i did not change anything but the walk which is basically like a, a relaxing or i call it the ginger the one that cleans the palate between two sushi bites was the longest walk I ever done in my class. More than 15 minutes only walking in between, sensing and grounding. Because that was a surprise attack, uh, I was not grounded. Then it became clashing. Once I realized it's clashing, you stop it, you go back to grounding. And then I asked him uh, after the class that we need to talk. Very simple. And of course, he came back after, it was fine, but you notice that once there is somebody who uh, popcorn explode, your ears for what they're saying and your eyes for how they look in the class are much more sharp. Yeah. And then you can do the Aikido better. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Funny, there's, a, there's also a practice called verbal Aikido. How to use uh, the energy of someone, the verbal energy uh, to be directed. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting because it all boils down to purpose. Yep. Alignment and purpose and making sure why we're here together. Sure. How do you stay in the emotional space? I think one big danger of workshops is that we are creating a space which obeys by different rules than the outside world. True. So we often, it's very creative, it's collaborative, it's uh, vulnerable. Yeah. 
and we express ourselves in ways that we usually don't express ourselves. So something is opening up. And I think that's, a, yeah, in both of our workshops, this is the case. And I think there is a danger of setting expectations that this behavior can just be taken and continued outside, yep. consciously or unconsciously. Mm-hmm. So what is your strategy in closing the container and preparing the participants for the outside world? Outside world. I'll refer a little bit more for your uh, workshops because I'm kind of figuring like techniques like non-violent communication where you mm-hmm. express your needs, wishes, and, and feelings. But in the outside world, is not always the same. If you tell my, your boss, I have feelings and this is, a, okay, do your job. <laughs> and when you got very, very open, basically like a crab that sheds his skin or his shed or his, his outside skin, and you're very, very sensitive. And that happens also in or every place where there's a lot of physical touch or shared movement or high energy and, and emotion comes up. You need to ground them at the end and you need to make them aware that this is not the outside world. And also, if, you, if it's a longer workshop, they start to create a small community. They start to create bonding. So they feel either with a small village or a small family, depends on the size of the group. And to sometimes it's really nice. They create like a WhatsApp group and stay for two years after I still see communication about stuff that they do or stuff that they want to do. And you tell them at the end that this is a different place and your body is very open, sensitive, and receptive for other things, take care. So you don't, uh, you know, in contact, it's very, very clear where the boundaries in class. You share mm-hmm. weight and you touch. And outside, you don't. That's very clear. But the openness of the psychology aspects is different because when you are very open, you will approach the world differently. And there's also the, uh, this term that is called vulnerability hangover. Mm-hmm which is after a very big session of a lot of energy and experience, new experience and openness and shedding a lot of layers, you become very vulnerable. And it's a nice feeling. It's a very nice feeling. And to be aware that once you go home and you're alone at home, back to patterns that you recognize, you will have a very down. Basically, you're going down. So to recognize that, that it's not the end of the world and it's not because, it's because you were very, very high half a day before. And now mm. hormones are down. If you used all of your serotonin, melatonin, oxytocin, you are depleted. And if you don't get a new rush of that, it's fine. This is how it goes. Very simple. Once you recognize that, you can play with it. And you see people who are getting semi-addicted or hooked to this feeling. Yeah. They would go from festival to festival, workshop to workshop. It's not a bad addiction, I have to say, but it's still something that you can say they're going for the heat. They're yeah. going for sugar rush. It's like producing your own drugs, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. And some facilitators know the way to do that. And I have to say that some people use it irresponsibly. Mm. You know how to biohack uh, a body. It's very simple. If your intention is to give a person more knowledge, more experience, then those tricks and any therapist knows some of the tricks and any good facilitator knows the tricks. It's good. Your intention is aligned. The better of the client, the, the, of the person there is 
in front of your eyes. If not, those tricks can be very, very, very dangerous. And if you're not aware of your intention, then it's murky water. Then it's a problem. Can you give an example? Because I have something in mind what you often say in class, but I would love to hear from you. Well, I'm curious about your, uh, what you think about. For example, I can say that if I need to a little bit up the energy, if I see some people who are, let's say, lethargic, right, I will ask them to walk and add a small thing, very simple. Once every minute or so, just make sure that one time you jump. Mm. Nobody can skip, nobody. It's very, very hard to skip or to jump and stay in a bad mood. Your body is heavy. So if you're allowing it to happen, you're basically biohacking a little bit different. And this needs to be very subtle and it doesn't need to be forceful. So it builds slowly up. And when I see 80% of the people are hoping, they don't need to be 100. It's fine. The group energy went up. Very simple. Mm -hmm. That's one biohack. The other one that I don't use and I don't like use because it's psychology, and I'm curious if this is what you meant, is looking in the Play. eyes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's a lot of a lot of workshops that use that, from tantra workshop to some dance workshop and everything. It's very vulnerable. People don't have a lot of awareness to how to block this, and you basically see or, or allowing to see into your own psyche. In Hebrew, and I think also in English, there's a phrase that the eyes are the windows to the soul. Mm. You can really go in, and some people can use that. And another thing that if you are allowing this to happen, if you don't really block it, and if you're allowing this to happen, after 20 seconds of eye gazing, automatically hormones are happening into bonding. So the feeling of falling in love is not because of that beautiful person in front of you. It's because you are programmed to do that. It's, it's basically phys it's physical. Same with touch. If you don't have an adversity or adversity for touch, if there's not such an, a, a body part that is in pain or there's trauma there, physical touch as mammals in a relaxed way, parasympathetic way, after 20 or 30 seconds, we start to create oxytocin, which is the bonding and the uh, affection home. So you see that a lot. And people are, in, for example, when we walk in space fast, it's adrenaline. When we're lying on the floor, probably also saw that in the workshop, and people slowly rolling and touching each other, then it becomes like a cuddle puddle, like a very different atmosphere. And everybody's with a smile and they have the gazed eyes and it's a loving experience. Nice. Don't fall in love with your dancer. Fall in love with the dance is something else. That's fine. And when people know that, they realize that because, yeah, that's, I'm dancing with you. It's, it's, a, it's a festival love. It's a workshop love. And after that, thank you very much. Bye-bye. True. And if not prepared, if not mentally and psychologically prepared, the dancer can indeed either confuse it with falling in love with the dancer and then it's dangerous because it sets false expectations. Yes. Or... Even increase, I think if you, if you produce these kind of happy hormones in a group context, then of course everyone will keep the workshop and its leader in a better memory. And therefore it's basically yes. manipulating. Yep. It's true. Yes. You have that also with verbal or any kind of workshop where we're being seen or creating intimacy, which is one of the keys in order to open up. 
also can be used in order to keep the person in your workshop. Mm-hmm. So a good therapist or a good facilitator or a good teacher wants to see the clients, partners, or person in front of them. But if your intention is to keep them with you, you can use that technique in order to do that. People who are very sensitive will see beyond the technique. So you feel intention. Intention is very full, but it's very feelable. But it takes a very sensitive person to see that. And I call that level the 95%. So if you don't have the technique, if you don't know what to do, and you're at 50%, it's kind of dangerous. If you're completely with the right intention, I'd say we're not everybody 100%, but it's 99%. It's really there. And if you're not there, you are using the technique, and it's 95% feel correct. But you have the five percent of the zing that is very dangerous. It is dangerous in my eyes. How do you detect that? Because it's fascinating. Because on the one hand, yes, we want to melt the ice between participants. We want to create trust and a sense of safety. And I, I'm actually preparing a workshop for a conference with the title "How to Fall in Love on Zoom," kind of playing with that. <laughs> Just to show that it's possible, that it's not stopped by the screen. Yeah. I believe in showing by example. So mm-hmm. I can honestly say that in my classes, I am, as far as I think, and of course, I'm very open to hear criticism, feedback. My main, if not only intention, is that people enjoy, learn, have an interesting experience, and that's it. Of course, I like to be liked, and ta 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 but that's not why I do it. So sometimes I will do stuff and I will say, you're going to not like me now. You're mm-hmm. really going to hate me now, and I hope it will pass in five minutes. But this is the exercise. So you lead by example, and then people realize that, okay, set your intention differently. And of course, they don't come, their main intention to come is not to teach, but they do teach each other. So if you show that and you create a safe enough space, um, they will be able to do that as well. Mm. If the person who's leading is in some way manipulative, it might not get caught in the first two or third session, but the waters are a little bit murky or the or the soil is, let's say, not the healthiest soil. At the end, it will have an effect. And you can really see that people will get at one point uh, sting with that uh, and they will not come back. Yeah. I was just thinking of Fight Club <laughs> and the addiction to the hugs, which I think is very similar. And I can perfectly see the addiction to this vulnerability, especially in the online world where mm-hmm. it's so easy because we don't have to meet each other in the street afterwards. <laughs> There's not this awkward situation. And I think it's a very fine line because on the one hand, it's nice. It's, I think it's a gift. Yes. To create the environment for people to feel seen and to feel happy. And you don't want this to become a drug or addictive or manipulative. Absolutely. Let's say that it might be a very useful drug when it is applied as a medicine rather than an addictive drug when you use it, when you abuse it or overuse it. Yes. So everybody needs a place to be seen and everybody needs a place to be heard and a place to create intimacy. If this is the only thing where you're going and you keep on going because there's an increasing need for that, then it's abusive or uh, addictive. 
if you know how to handle it and you can use it when needed, mm. then it's perfectly fine. Perfectly fine. I mean, if you, if you fell in love with dancing and you do it a bit more, fine. At some extent, you need to see that either you make it your profession, perfectly fine, passion, profession, or if you keep on doing that every day, all day long, it might interfere with your regular life. All your people, your friends, your wife, your husband, your kids will say, what about us? And then there's not a very big difference than other addictive behavior. The only difference, which is a substantial one, is that it is not destructive to your body and to others. Yeah. Which brings us a little bit in the direction you mentioned that um, that you studied dance therapy initially. Yeah. So how do you how do you use your knowledge from dance therapy in the work you're doing today, and what what can we learn from it, or what is it in the first place? Dance therapy basically uses the body movement and the creative process in order to uh, bring forward aspects of your psyche that want to either enlarge or to be addressed if something is stuck. Something is stuck in the body in the form of emotions, also sometimes cognition, patterns of thoughts that are very different, or trauma. I use it a little bit, let's say it like that. What I learn mostly and I use is the way of holding the space so I don't get super triggered if somebody cries in my workshop. Like, okay, you cry. Here's a tissue. And that's fine. And if you don't get super stressed by that, they don't. They allow it. Mm. Or if somebody gets frustrated, all of the emotions, which is called unpleasant emotions, frustration, anger, aggressive or sadness, fine. If you know that it's not only fine, it's, it's allowed, they will dissolve that itself most of the time. Practically wise, it's about energy of like how to engage with the body, what it's needed. So you probably notice in the workshop, sometimes you go more up with energy and then you notice when the body cannot absorb more information and you slow down or you allow the emotions to stay there or to be felt, which is usually the softer parts of the workshop or the meditative part of the workshop. And if you can really feel the entire group, and I'm working with group, not with individuals, is uh, hitting a place where it needs to go out of them, out of the underworld, let's say it like that, you can semi, and that's manipulative, but that's, in, I call it a good manipulative, take them out with music, with your voice, and with instructions. So manipulative is not a bad word in my eyes. Manipulative basically means change, yeah. It literally means change with your hand. It's not mm-hmm. the intention is what counts. If you're manipulative with an intention to get or do something for yourself to gain, it's an issue. If your intention is for the group or for the individual, it's not an issue. Mm. It's Thank you for your st- distinction. Yes. Yeah. Parents do that all the time. They're very manipulative. They will use reverse psychology with their kids. It's perfectly fine. Their job, basically. Yeah. <laughs> we are addressing different uh, kids' behavior in the class or in facilitation, but if you have the same intention, perfectly fine. Yeah. And what came to my mind was with teams. 
So if I think of the business context, then what you just described can be a very effective process to work actually even in the corporate world. And I have two questions around that. One is maybe the entry question, and then hopefully we can dig a little bit deeper. Why is it so intimidating for to dance in the professional life? Is it something culturally? Because for instance, in African cultures, dancing is very normal. And still I interviewed a facilitator from Uganda and she said, well, in a workshop, in a Zoom workshop, we wouldn't dance, although dancing is a total part of our lives. So this cannot be it. So there is something that makes dance uncomfortable. What is it? I was almost curious to say, what do you think? Like to bring it back to you, because mm. you come from that world, and I come from the movement facilitation world. Um, for me, okay, do, do you want? Um, I can give, uh, I can try. Okay, so so. My guess would be twofold. One is similar to what you said about the eyes. I have the impression that when I express myself with my body, it's as if someone can see my soul without me protecting it. So it's, I feel very vulnerable in the purest sense, mm-hmm. almost naked. And the second one is, I think, an insecurity for a lack of language. So I don't know how to express myself in movement. So I don't know what's right or wrong. So the fear of judgment, basically. Yeah. Okay. So basically, correct. Or like, also, I think very similar. Dance and movement is freedom. The corporate world is about structure. When you go to work, you have a pack. You have like a, you have a suit. You have a specific. And when I will ask you, basically, to take your shoes off. This takes you from a very different place where you feel comfortable to a very different area, which in your mind doesn't come together. Like, this is where I eat, this is where I sleep. doesn't come together. Mm. And then you are basically asked to be seen in your own self. You bring your own self and the freedom where in corporate world, there's a lot of structure and semi-control. Dance will break that. Movement will break that. You will see your boss doing weird stuff. And sometimes they will feel not ad- um, adequate good in it. And that would bring a very weird feeling for the person who's in control in the office to do something that they don't know what to do. Mm-hmm. However, this, especially in improvisation, there is no right and wrong. There is no bad movement and there is not something that is not beautiful if you are doing it with intention and attention. So my teacher used to say, drinking a coffee can be the best dance act ever. Same as meditation. It's like the way, and you will feel it, the way that the person holds their body or move, you will see if they're there, you will see if they're uncomfortable, and you will see their intention and, and how, how well they are doing it, where they're feeling it. And it's very vulnerable. People in the workplace don't want to be vulnerable. People in the workplace usually see from here up. This sure, is what's working. Mm-hmm. And although the body is doing a lot of movement or a lot of communication, they try to hide it. Mm. Unconsciously. 
than trying to hide it. It's like you will see, um, yeah. Like the, the duck the, below the water. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So basically, the, the duck below the water is a pretty good uh, analogy. The above looks super relaxed, swimming like a swan, and below the water, the legs do like flat brain around. And you're asking them, put the attention on the legs. Now, if the mm. data doesn't know how to bring that in a very non-judgmental, curious, and actually open way, they would have a very hard time to do that. But if you bring it, this is outside of your world. We are going into playground. The best you can do is exactly what you're doing. If they manage to do that, they will have a really good time and they will learn and they will be able to change the, the, the point of view on each other and on themselves, which is sometimes also very scary because I have an image in the company and I want to keep it like that. Mm. Not necessarily beneficial for the company, but very safe for me. Yeah. Mm. And how can, how can you break that? And what is the opportunity? Baby steps. So I'm coming to their world. Like if you remember in our workshop, I usually do it with a big workshop because there's a lot of beginners. With people who know the material, you don't need that. People who don't know material, you need to meet them at their world and mm. bring them to yours. You need to show them that I know where you are, been there, done that. Now let's expand it. So even with walking and just shaking hands, the most business-wise ever, mm. you're shaking hands. Now, add a little bit. Stay in the hand a little bit longer. They will start to feel really uncomfortable. Really uncomfortable. And then you make a small joke. Now make it exaggerated. When you make something a caricaturist, you allow them to channel that uncomfortable and to show it in a very, very weird way while doing the job or doing the task. They get permission. Yes. Yep. You yeah. are permitted to be very, very silly. And some people will go for it. And then you will see the emotional stuff that comes up, not from the work, but from the past, which means a person who really had a nice time playing in childhood can tap into that and bring that forward. A person who was really structured and that is not allowed will have a very, very hard time breaking that. So this is not work-wise. This is already a long past experience. And then you know how to meet them. You need to meet the people with the most resistance personally to show them I know where you are. And it's safe. Yeah. And only then there's a chance that they will go along with you. Yeah. And if they are, I call them. I do the workshop in my eyes for them because they have no idea how they will feel better when they click. The people who jump into experience or who jumps into movement or who jumps into all of this, yeah, okay, super simple. You're already in. You know why it's good. The people who've never done that, those are my favorite crowd in the sense like, let's get you because you don't know what you're missing. Let's get you because when you change that, you will grow. You will have another tool in your toolkit, basically. You can keep what you have, but you have another tool in your toolkit and you can choose what to do. You can be very serious at job and very playful when needed. 
Just to dig a little bit deeper, because I'm very curious, and I'm sure that the audience is as well. And because I think that it is a field that is not so explored yet. We have Lego serious play, we have drawing and visuals, all of that music in workshops, but the embodiment, the true embodiments for dance, I think, as you say, it's complex. So it's not a work that every facilitator can do. So what are we missing? <laughs> Create a little bit FOMO for us. What is the opportunity for a team? What can we learn about communication, leadership, teamwork from dancing? Okay, let's take even leadership and, and following. When you lead somebody or when you give instruction or when you give when you want to pass information, you want to see that your partners or co-workers are able to handle it. How much information they can handle and when am I losing them? Because most of your co-workers will not. Do you understand? Yes. <laughs> even if they have no understanding, most of them or some of them will say, I'll, I'll pick it up along the way. I will ask somebody else later. In dance, you cannot. I'm going to give you a movement and you're going to copy me. Can I just pause for one second? Because I think that's super important. That mm -hmm. it, it doesn't work in dance and it doesn't work in remote work. And I think that was the problem that the amplifier that hit us with the pandemic that Yes, we, we always not. And we're going to learn along the way. I just asked someone and suddenly we, there's no one to ask. True. So, and the second thing that you said is that leadership is about absorbing information. Leadership is the ability to notice how much information you can bring to the yeah. person and how much they can absorb. Yeah. Yeah. And then to notice, okay, then to regulate it, to make yeah. sure that they're not only nodding. <laughs> But yeah. that they actually got it. With that sense, when you do some kind of exercise with leadership, it's also about the speed of movement. Can they follow me exactly? If a person is super excited about their idea, for example, a new startup or anything that they want to convey, and they will use that excitement to convey it, it's very different and passionate, but very slow, articulated, and well-versed movement, either in words or in movement. And then people will follow your passion, but will understand where you are, will understand what you're bringing them. If you're just hyper, okay, you're an excited kid. Very nice. But if you have a passion and a well-versed way of conveying that, very different. Mm. In leadership, you need to know how many people follow you, how many people are doing what you ask or where you lead. And, and also the way to follow. So I always say you cannot be a good leader without the ability to follow. Very different because if you don't know how to follow, how can you expect people to follow you? Because you, you, don't, know, have, you don't have the awareness of how to adjust your leadership to make, yeah. them, make it easy to facilitate the followership. Yeah. It's very different than either, mm -hmm. let's say, a boss or a tyrant that's not a leader A leader needs to know how to follow first to recognize that in his or her body so they know how to lead because then they recognize where the other person is and then they can regulate in order to bring them with you or to join them. And a good leader can switch leadership. So in a good company, you're not supposed to be all the time the leader in every role and in every project. 
that's basically delegating. Mm-hmm. You delegate the leadership role from you to another person. And you tell, you do that, and I will say yes to what you're, you're, doing, you're saying. Very humbling for a boss, but very helpful for a small company or a big department. And this brings another thing to my mind that you mentioned, and that I mentioned in the podcast in different contexts, the shared responsibility in a dance that it's not 50-50, but it's 100 and 100. Both have 100% of responsibility. And that's similar than in leadership, being aware of what it means to follow, because then the follower is not just asking or waiting for being told what to do, because then you have a micromanager. But it's both have 100% responsibility in sensing what is needed and what needs to be done. Yes. Exactly that. Like in improvisation, we sometimes say that in the piece, there's a few levels. One, you are consciously deciding. So you make a conscious decision. Actually, the first part is unconscious decision that comes from past reaction. Then you decide. Then you know what works. And then you actually let that go. And this will be a little bit of a la land. So if what people want. You allow the space to choose for you, which means it happens through you. Now, I don't know how to convey that, let's say, for the business world, but what it means for us as a creative people on the creative process is that you are open without your cognitive bias, let's call it like that, to get new ideas and to allow them to flow. In movement, it is an amazing feeling. You feel like Seven people are just one body. It clicks in in a very, very, very beautiful, and everybody would come out of that and say, wow, I don't know what happened, but it happened. In creative process for people, the idea would pop up, and they would not even know where they come from. Mm. Okay, that is a weird idea, and people will start to add more and more ideas or more and more aspects to them, and it would be a very successful, most of the time, process to create a group. Even if the idea at the end will not be taken, the process really helps to create a group. Interesting. What comes to my mind is um, the sentence they use in Lego Serious Play, that you help participants to think with their hands. So you ask them to create their vision, to build it out of Lego blocks. Mm-hmm. And now I wonder whether it would be possible to think with your body. <laughs> so how would it look like to, mm-hmm. to dance the vision. Yeah. If you will Google, I don't remember what it is. You have PhD presentation in dance. You have a university that presents its PhD and it's not a dance, it's not a dance material. It's PhD in physics or chemistry that is presented in dance. I don't know if they get tested or it, but they have like a dancers that present in front of an audience, like a lecture, the idea of a PhD. Bonding molecules. It's really nice to see. It's very funny. It's very interesting. And it brings a very different understanding than seeing a, a blackboard or a whiteboard. Yeah, fascinating. So what can we learn about communication from dancing? So if you see a team and without speaking, just the way how they interact with nonverbal communication... What can you say about them and how can you help them through dance? You you can say, 
I would not use the word dance because it really set the bar uh, and, and people project a lot of their idea. Words create worlds. Thank you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I would say movement. Mm-hmm. Movement is very, very uh, low drempel, low, uh, low step to go. I mean, we are all moving. People would say, look, I'm not a dancer. But if you ask them, do you move? Yes, I can move. Okay, then we move. Everybody moves. Thank so you. Simply by movement, uh, you can see a lot. The way that the person is holding himself or herself, the way that they interact, how much space. You need to know culturally how much is it appreciated or, or custom. So a person from Japan will hold their body very differently than a person from Italy. A different kind of interaction, mostly non-verbal. Uh, you can see cultural clashes just by use of space, just by the way that they are interacting. You can see how much a person is grounded, feeling very, very, uh, not only safe, but comfortable in the skin. You can see the, the level of energy if somebody is very engaged or dreamy. And all of this, you know, you unconsciously feel it. But once you consciously are aware of that, you can change and choose how to play with it. Choose whom you're putting with whom because it's more beneficial for the team. Where do you sit? How do you set the space before? Setting of a conference is very well designed for one f- for specific material. Change the space. Sometimes I really like to, uh, when I'm doing different weird sessions, let's call it like that, or different sessions, not putting chairs, not putting yoga mats, letting them decide and just watch the dynamic. Really watch the, who comes first. The first three people will decide how the space looks. Then who follows? Are they following what footsteps or are they adding something contrary, adding or subtracting from what is, is happening? All of this you can just see by looking at what's happening in the interaction between movement of people. Fascinating. And if you replace the the yoga mats and the cushions with just tables and chairs to see yes. how a team yes. would set up the meeting space. Completely, completely. It's very different. Put on a chair, uh, like a table and chairs and see where people sit when they don't know where they're supposed to sit if there's no names. Yeah. Make them create a space. Ooh. Not, and then it's a different question. Together or whoever comes first. Yeah. Or yes, and or differently, are they putting everything back together? And how is the if the leader comes in? Yep. Are they then complaining how the space is made up? Yep. Ooh. Or if the leader sets the space? Yeah. They will, and then they will see the people who like it, the people who don't like it, and most of them will not complain because it is set by the leader, by the boss, but it will be underground, and that is visible. The same way as I'm asking the people to do an exercise, some of them don't like it. They will do it anyway. Not all the time, and that's perfectly fine, because that's a class. I'm not the boss. <laughs> But you will feel it. And when you know how to feel and how to sense and how to see those nonverbal cues, it helps. And you can ask after verbally, because it's although uh, after, let's say, a lot of years of uh, refining my intuition that only happened after I guessed and I asked and I still ask it's like I feel or I sense that something is off here is it correct and that helps me to refine my intuition later on 
Because sometimes when I'm wrong, it's like, oh, interesting. Thank you. Because that helped me to refine it. And then the question is, is it really wrong? Or is it maybe just a blind spot? Because very often, sometimes we get then so surprised by an external view mm -hmm. that we don't even want to see it. And maybe only later realize, oh, actually, there was something, but I wasn't aware of. Yeah, that can also be. And then you still, once you're shown your blind spot, you learn. Once I'm shown that, although I thought that behavior represent this and this and this feeling, while asking that person, and I got a different answer, I can refine my uh, thesis, let's say, like that, my, my, my thoughts. My yeah, the hypothesis. I, mm. And it's, it can open such a beautiful inquiry of, yeah, how the team works together with the simplest tools. Yeah. You can have an entire day of debriefing of just, of just how to set up the, the workshop space. Yeah. And then mm. it's also a question because it's again brings in vulnerability. Because if a person is hiding something, they don't want to show it. And if you're asking it, it is a very big leap to actually acknowledge the nonverbal cue that is happening in your body. When a person asks, how are you? The most common answer in business world or in any social world is that I'm fine. I'm good. That is basically nothing. That is like, okay, 20 people are not the same feeling. They're not good. If they're able to a little bit more elaborate, and if they're able to elaborate also the non-comfortable position, places, or sensation, then it's a much more safe and, and basically vulnerable place. And companies, of course, need to have those places like HR or the psychologist of the company where it's able to do that. It's more beneficial that the company is open enough that the person can actually direct feedback slash criticism slash feelings that are not necessarily comfortable for the person in power or for the group to hear. Yeah. And I think it's also, yes, you mentioned whether the person is able to say it. I think it's also, does the person feel permission to say it? Because there's a difference, me asking, how are you doing? And then basically already having the breath for the next sentence in or to ask, so how are you doing? Yeah. So how are you really doing? Yeah. How are you doing? Really? Yes. And pausing and looking at them, you will get a totally different answer. True. Fascinating. And if that is allowed in the workplace and it's also the people know and feel it, it's different because you can also get like a statement that We care about all of our employees and workers, and we want to have this very nice and, and, and open. And yeah, these are words. Mm. These are definitely words. But if your body doesn't follow, it's just words. And people will not believe your words. They will believe your action, your attitude, and your body. Yeah. Nice. Do I remember I read this book about body language and that stated that We have such a good intuition to see inconsistencies between yeah. our words, our facial expression, our body language, that mm -hmm. if someone says, yeah, I'm good, but we kind of see in their body language that they're not, we sense the inauthenticity yeah. and feel that something is off. Yeah. Exactly. This is, this is called incongruence, but the, the physical doesn't match the uh, verbal or the all of that, what you just said. And you're very sensitive to that. 
And this will actually bring you to a place of like, watch out. Because if there is consistency, you can trust. If there is no consistency, you cannot trust or believe that person. Yeah. Because what they say is not true according to their body. So maybe what they say next time is also not true. And when there is consistency, you're much more open for trusting the situation. And that's why when you're saying, I'm okay, and I'm, I'm really happy, and your body says not, and if you actually be vulnerable and open that, the other person will trust you more, not because of the vulnerability only, but because it's congruent. Mm. If your body is super excited and you're super happy and you, are, you ask, how are you? It's like, yeah, everything is normal. You will also not trust the person yeah. because it's not congruent. Yeah, and then the brain basically learns, okay, I can trust this person because they're more likely to tell the truth. Mm-hmm. Fascinating. Walk your, walk your talk. Yes, <laughs> literally. Mm-hmm. Literally, move your talk. Yeah. And then it would be... I guess it would open up an entire different conversation of then how to have these conversations, because I think something like our body posture and how we move in the space is something very personal, very vulnerable. And maybe I don't want to be called out on that and what it actually means in front of my team members or even of my. That's very true. Because once you put the, the lens on that, that's very interesting. If I would say like, for like when I was uh, in my stage with psychologists, so we share basically we did each other, and everybody sometimes gave a session for the other colleagues, and they were super scared when we gave the sessions because they were like, "Oh, now you can see everything that I do." They felt really, ne- and these are psychologists. Their aim is to be vulnerable or bring their clients to a vulnerability place and openness. And I was like, "Oh, but you're gonna see my posture, and what does it mean? What does it mean? What does it mean?" So, yes, the glasses are on, but they're on for everybody, not just my glasses. Your glasses are on. It is just basically that your body reads through them and not necessarily your mind or conscious mind. Mm. So you react to that anyway. What we as trained body facilitators, let's say that, can read it and actually read it out loud. You read it in your heart. We read it out loud. And then there's a, a good thing, and basically the, the ethics of it is not to use it. Or do you use it in an ethical sense? Because yeah. I think that's the, the superpower of a facilitator is to make the implicit explicit and to use it in a constructive way to leverage the power of the group. Yeah, that's true. That, that's setting the intention. But if a person doesn't want to be outed about what the posture is there, I would not say, listen, I think you're very, very closed or you have something that you're hiding. No. <laughs> that will be like you're breaching a very big boundary without even asking for permission. Yeah. But you are able to let them feel that, ask what is possible for them to change in the posture and let them feel that. Mm-hmm. And, choose. and different posture will bring different kinds of sensations and feelings. Yeah. So it's not necessarily fake it till you make it because then it's like, yeah, okay, there's a different intention. But gradually changing and accepting where you are. Mm. Gradually changing and accepting where you are. And then choosing consciously what to do. Yeah. 
True, because there's a reverse. So we feel better when we have a more open posture, but also when we have a more open posture, we feel better. So it's a reinforcing system. Yeah. And you can, what I hear you saying is you can basically approach it from both angles. You can ask them to open their posture and feel how they feel and then maybe adopting it. We do mm. that every time in the class when we are standing and checking for our alignment. When we are standing, then you see a lot of different kind of alignment. Belly out, slouching, head like this. People are wavering with their hands, irritation. Breathe, ground, find your alignment. It's also really interesting to see like the most simple exercise when we are sleeping and when we sit, when we are sitting and I will ask or somebody ask, pay attention a bit for your breath and your body. I'm not even saying meditation. Pay a bit attention to your breath and your body. Immediately, people will do this. So I didn't ask you to change their body. Anything. So they ground yeah? their feet and sit up straight. Or like, okay, let's do. I didn't ask them to do anything. I asked them to pay for their attention. Pay attention for where their body is right now. You don't need to change anything. Mm. So even if I'm sitting like this, pay attention where your body is. Yep. You just bring attention yeah. in. Okay, and I'll change something. That's it. Mm. Thank you so much, Tom, for inviting us into this different world and different, but actually not so different. Yes. Thank you very much, Miriam. I had a very nice time talking with you. Yes. And if someone wants to reach out and bring more movement to their work. I would be very, very happy to bring that outside into also corporate world or other places. Uh, You can reach me by uh, just Googling Tom Goldhand through my mail, tom underscore goldhunt at yahoo.com. If you will Google me, you will see lots of crazy movements, but that's not what I'm bringing to the corporate world or to the workshop there. Uh, This is another field. You're also very welcome there, but that's another field. Highly recommended, and I'll put all the information in the show notes. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you for staying tuned and for listening until the very end. I hope that you found the inspiration and the wisdom that you are looking for. And I hope that you will subscribe to the show so that you never miss any of the interviews with another inspiring facilitator from across the world. I'm devoted to continue this podcast and to deliver weekly an episode that maintains the quality that you expect and you deserve. And if you would like to help me to maintain this quality and to keep the podcast free, please help us visit workshops.work slash support to make a small donation to keep the podcast free. Thank you so much. I hope to be in your ears next week.